0: OVER THE LINE!
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Over Under Movies, the podcast in which we pick one overrated and one underrated movie, uh, connected through the same style, story, narrative, or uh, however we see fit. I am Oktai Ege Kozak. I'm Ryan Oliver.
2: And I am Kenji Fujishima
1: hey and we have kanji as our guest um, critic on this on this episode and we have kanji's picks which are I guess uh, I guess we'll get into it but I guess they're, they're kind of tied into with the theme of uh, American capitalism, uh, early 20th century uh, American capitalism and how this country got this way through, Maybe uh, greed or good old-fashioned ingenuity or um you know so we have we have two films about two uh incredibly ambitious figures who went out who went out. Into their own way and um, made things happen, uh, but they have you know vastly different approaches to how they deal with the characters. Kenji's overrated pick uh, is a little bit of a controversial one, but uh, I think it's going to open it up to uh, to some interesting discussion. It is Paul Thomas Anderson's 2007 um, oil drilling uh, drama uh, and um, allegory about milkshakes, uh, there will be blood. If you have a milkshake and I have a milkshake and I have a straw, there it is, that's a straw, you see.
2: Watch it. My straw reaches across the
0: room and starts to drink your milkshake.
1: I drink your
0: milkshake.
1: Drink it up. Uh, so Kenji, without further ado, uh, why'd you pick There Will Be Blood as overrated?
2: Well, uh, let me just say that I uh, I remember struggling with this film a lot when it came out, and even now I still kind of struggle with the film because I I certainly admire the skill and the technique and the performance. I, I admire a lot of things about There Will Be Blood, um, and we can certainly talk about uh, um, all of the like all the various aspects of this film. Um, But I think ultimately for me, what it comes down to is that I still struggle to, and even then I still kind of struggle to, I guess, understand what it is about. um, It's like grand themes that people found revelatory, insightful. I mean, I'm very much... The movie still even now impresses me with the uh with the aesthetic force with with which it like it explores this character, Daniel Plainview, but I also feel that um I feel like what Anderson is trying to get at about capitalism is kind of a cliche that filmmakers like Orson Wells with Susan Kane had already explored i think too much uh greater effect and i mean anderson obviously has his own way of doing it and and some of the some of the really weird ways he does it in this film are really interesting but um i find what it has to say about its grand subjects kind of banal and um and i especially and we can talk more about this later but i especially am troubled by its um attitude towards religion Especially in the in in the uh, with the uh, Eli Sunday character, um, in it just for me at least, it's always rankled me the the what I find kind of a uh, kind of cheap uh, derision toward religion. That like I mean I am not I'm not a religious man myself though, so like I understand what he's saying about uh, how much of a snake oil. Of oil, snake oil salesman Eli Sunday is, but I also feel that it it strikes me as very much preaching to a certain kind of you know, liberal choir mm. in certain ways that kind of have always kind of rankled me. Even though I understand in this context how like that character's like function, like in the narrative and in like Daniel Plainview's li- life as this kind of nemesis, and I mean I get the fact that. Plainview is a much more much more honest about his one track mind than uh eli sunday is and to some degree that's where their dynamic gets their uh and i think that's what frisson.
1: infuriates him is that he knows that he's as much of a charlatan as he is uh but but he's he sees that at least he's being kind of i mean he's a duplicitous prick as well in many ways but yeah. he sees that in many, in he he sees through him. He sees the um, the kind of wolf and sheep's clothing. Um, they're they're both made out of the same cloth. So I think, aside from having any kind of religious significance or what it says about religion in general, which I don't think it really says, that much about religion in general. I think what Tom uh, Anderson is saying basically is that people like this will hang on to anything, uh, that could be used to control people, um, to get what they want. Uh, so basically like Daniel Plainview was using, um, HW to make it look like he has this like loving, stable family so that yeah. he can approach his marks, uh, and, um, Tell them like you know. It's it starts the first time you hear any it dialogue. It's him like basically going on and on about like how much of a family man he is and right. how normal he is, just like the rest of them. And he isn't. He is like he's a beast, as he as he says uh, with that with that famous monologue about like how much he hates people and there's a competition in him. And right. it kind of shows that like I don't think it's specifically about religion, but it it shows that people like Daniel and, and Daniel and, and Eli will use. Any kind of anything at their disposal to kind of lull uh, the, let's say, not so smart and intuitive public to to go with whatever <laughs> they want to to do. Um, just getting politically for like a second, just as an example, like, yeah. I don't think anybody um, with uh, even a little bit of a cynical mind who can who can look at the. Logic of things believes that, uh, like Donald Trump is a Christian, like is a devout <laughs> Christian. Yeah, but right. he is he is he is like that character. He's like he's totally using that as a thing to to manipulate people, and a lot of uh, politicians do as well. Uh, yeah, so I think yeah. I I, I kind of look at it from that perspective, like and in a very specific perspective from like what people, what American capitalism or America, the American dream, quote unquote opened up the floodgates to that kind of a personality where um, these types of things can be manipulated to um, to be used by people uh, for their own kind of selfish gains. Um, but mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you think about that aspect of it, Ryan? Do you think the film is kind of very easily preaching to the liberal, like, atheist agnostic choir um, or – you know, is it about something bigger?
0: Uh, I, th- I mean, I think it's a little bit about something bigger. I don't necessarily see it preaching to the choir because, I mean, you you have the duality that I think, as you said, that sort of uh, wolf and sheep's clothing that both Eli and Daniel Plainview have. But I think like being such a good like nemesis for the, the competition that Plainview sees in himself, like not only does Eli represent uh, uh, in his in Plainview's eyes, a phony. But also, like yeah. Plainview's, like thirst for power, like goes beyond man. Like, like his thirst for being in power just goes so free on, so far beyond man that he like that he really doesn't even want to stop till he's conquered God. Which is how I sort yes. of have read the ending, like when you know the whole yeah. bowling pin scene more, happens. That he is
1: primal now right? Help, yeah, that really. now
0: he is now he is now he is transcended in his mind. Now he is transcended and he has conquered <laughs> both God and man. And so that's ultimately what I what I've seen of it. And even though like you know both characters are you know inherently not great people, I think there there's still an empathy for the Eli character. I mean, because the Plainview character is so so relentlessly, um, you know, evil in, in the way that like, he's, again, he has no transparency over who he is. Like we see who he is from the entire time. So I think there's a little bit of empathy yeah. with the other character. Um, cause you know, myself not being a super religious person either, I do empathize a little bit just because there are certain scenes where I'm just like, he is just, he's just outmatched completely. Uh, you know, like the, right. don't bully me, Daniel. I'm gonna bury you in the ground, Eli. Like you know, stuff like that. It's just like it. It does make you empathize just a little bit, uh, with that character. So I, I've never seen it as preaching too hard to that liberalist view, uh, because I feel like both characters get a pretty, get a pretty fair shake in terms of what they're both about and where their, uh, flaws lie. You,
2: That's you funny. may, it's quite possible you may have a bit more empathy for Eli Sunday than I could work up. <laughs> That's yeah, fair me, enough. Me, me neither. Actually, sure, um... sure.
1: It's hard to, whatever empathy I have for him is basically comes from, you know, I don't believe for a second that he is, he actually is as religious as he says he is. Maybe he has a certain yeah. amount of belief in God and, and, and the Bible that like kind of propel them to be like, hey, I can use this to like kind of sucker people into my own way of like, he's really trying to like use this, um, the the oil well that comes into town as like a springboard to for like to create his giant congregation almost like he's almost like the original um uh one of those like evangelical preachers who like mm-hmm. who have like these giant uh churches and like travel and like jets and stuff he's almost like the yeah, yeah. Sure. he's almost like the granddaddy of them and that's what he wants to do and it's like yeah the the sympathy doesn't come, f- empathy doesn't come from that. The, my empathy for him comes from the fact that, just like you said, Ryan, he's insanely outmatched yes. from the very <laughs> beginning. So every time he like goes after Daniel Plainwheel and tries to do like a tête-à-tête, uh, you just you just kind of go like, dude, you're gonna get fucked out of this like don't don't do it <laughs> just like do your own like like you it's it's like that kind of like like in a horror movie it's like yeah don't go into the cabin kind of thing right <laughs> where you like talk
2: to yeah. the you're
1: just like don't don't do this like it, this is not going to end well for you and of course it doesn't but um, right. but yeah, it, it's hard to have uh, empathy for him beyond that um, sure. but at least you get that kind of empathy it's um, Daniel Plainview is almost like that like the film itself I can kind of understand why people have issues with connecting with it emotionally as much as like like kenji saying how like uh aesthetically how how beautiful the cinematography is and the it's very and... imposing
2: that yes it's very yeah uh,
1: but it's it's almost like the tone of the film reflects daniel plainview's nihilism in a way that like yeah i don't think the film itself cares whether you like it or not um it's about like it's just showing you in a in kind of a blunt force um What this character stands for, what he's trying to get out of his life and how he's going to just destroy everybody, including his son, uh, to get get what he wants to get his way. And that's not pleasant. That's not likable in any way. Uh, But in in some ways, there are these people exist by like millions uh yeah sure whether or not they're rich or not there are people who are like working class and middle class who are who have this personality so i i I really communicate i really like attached to that aspect of it but i do understand like kanji do you do you kind of feel that way that you can't um like emotionally um connect with the film because of this kind of cold attitude that it has almost like kubrickian like it reminds me of yeah Which, which that does, that's not so much
2: where, where like my problems with it. Like, I don't mind that aspect because I mean, I like Kubrick as much as the next guy. And I don't, I've always, I've never really had that much problem with his like chilly attitude towards characters. I mean, obviously, each filmmaker is different and has different personalities. And like, to, to force every filmmaker to conform to what you, what you prefer for a movie is like, that would be, that would be just like, very limiting. But, um, I think what it is for me for, with there will be like his, uh, Anderson's approach and there will be blood is that I think you talk about like, this is a very specific story about a very specific character, um, and his worldview. And I mean, Anderson does to a considerable degree align with his main character. He doesn't. He he. It's like he's kind of playing like a like a balancing act between like kind of standing outside, but also trying to like inhabit it to some degree. Mm. Um, and the thing is, I just there are things about like the way he's characterized in the movie that I've um, that some people might consider like mysterious, and other and then but I've always felt kind of like under imagined and under like like for instance that speech uh, that that that. Classic speech he kiffs about the, I see nothing worth liking in people. That speech, like, nice, I mean, nice voice by the way. <laughs> I've worked on it many years.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: but uh, the thing is that, like, the movie doesn't. At least, perhaps you guys have different opinions on this. But for me, the movie doesn't really. It's so it sticks so closely to Plainview's perspective that it doesn't. I don't quite grasp where this um, this misanthropy came from. And I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily demand movies like dot every I or T in like characterization. I mean um, to explain these characters, but it all, it's always kind of, for me at least frustrated me, like to some degree it feels to me like Anderson just had this idea, this Kind of monstrous horror movie main character, and you you do get some nuances within what he shows you, but it also I also feel like there's perhaps it's it sticks so closely to his perspective that it's if it doesn't feel as rich to me in that regard, like it doesn't it doesn't really have that many other perspectives, like other than like I guess that one scene in which Eli attacks his dad. During dinner mm. time, while he has mud caked on his face. Mm. Other than that, it still it sticks so closely to plain view that it, it feels like, it, I feel it's a bit limiting in what it says in, in the grand themes it tries to tackle.
1: The fact that it it sticks so close to him that is completely from his perspective, and the the kind of uh, damp, dark, um, very kind of morbid, um, but beautiful in many ways cinematography or the style that it has um yeah kind of reflects that as well and i think i do think it is it is very much like mostly apart from like one or two scenes it's very much from his perspective and you almost see people from that perspective as well like everybody is just a sucker to be taken advantage of or everybody is like a a a game that yeah or a bureaucrat everybody's a pawn in the game that that should be used and it's almost like they are uh, depicted that way, so I can see why that could be kind of um, harder to get behind um, for some people. Mainly because it is a, um, like I said, I think I think the film kind of uh, captures Plainview's um, world worldview as well. It's almost like yeah. the film itself is almost as nihilistic as he is. Was, uh, and and it's like uh, well, this is like people. People are morons, and then there will there's a moron, there's a sheep, and then there will always be a wolf who comes in and like takes advantage of them. And it's almost like in a very plain, uh, universal, uh, primal sense, uh, the film is about. Uh, it almost kind of to me, it almost transcends the specifics of um, you know you said specifically it's about it's a very personal story of like daniel plainview is specifically about him or specifically about like a turn of the 20th century american capitalism and all that stuff uh, mm-hmm. which it is about all of that uh, but in a way because because of its raw power it's all, it almost kinds of it almost kinds of kind of um, transcends that to me and becomes a fable or a morality tale uh, a human tale about uh, like how primal uh, we still are in many ways. Uh, we have just basically uh, a lot of us has dro- have dropped the spears and the uh, the shields and picked up uh, you know bank books and banking books and uh, the economy yeah. and yeah. numbers. Uh, and that there's there really isn't that much of a difference between the two. And in the way the the ending kind of solidifies that the shocking ending um, where a lot of people are like I can't believe it ended that way and. In a way, like my reaction to everybody saying that was like, it couldn't have ended any other way. Like it's it was inevitable no, yeah. that that it yeah. was gonna get there. So I kind of have that kind of attitude towards it. Uh, in the way that um, the fact that it is a bit of a, I don't want to say single dimensional, but um, but I don't like you said. There's you said that he's trying to like build some kind of a mystery behind him, but I don't think that's his intention at all. From the very first scene on. Uh, you know exactly what this guy is about. You know exactly, you know that he's never going to stop to get what he wants because the first scene is basically him uh, mining, breaking his leg and dragging himself across in the desert across like how many miles to get his money? <laughs> uh, like that's insane. Like, and then he he, he makes a point of like seeing him like dragging himself and like kind of tilting up to see like how long of like, he's just looking at like miles and miles of like nothing, just flat desert and mountains. And, uh, from that first scene alone, he's, he's showing you like, this guy is not going to stop. He's a machine. He's not going to stop getting whatever he wants at any cost. Uh, Mm -hmm. and it does become kind of a parable about, uh, American capitalism, but it also becomes like kind of a, um, like a, like a morality tale, like a, like a human tale, uh, in in many ways and that's what i love about it um yeah but i i do i do see that if you look at it from this kind of like specific storytelling perspective where it's about you know let's try to like dig more into this character why why did he become this way why did he uh why does he act this way why uh you get a couple of hints here and there about like his family and how like basically disrupted or broken his family was um yeah and that you get you get hints at uh I love the subplot about his his quote-unquote brother, you know, not to spoil too much because of the... um, But um, I love that subplot because it is the one subplot that shows, even beyond his relationship with his son, it is the one subplot that shows that maybe he is looking for something beyond his own um, ambition. And that uh, this this brother um, figure, more than like his son, who he doesn't actually have a blood connection to... Um, just kind of makes him feel like, yeah, maybe I could use with some yeah. kind of company, some kind of family, some kind of human connection.
0: And then that revealed kind of destroys his last ounce of potential goodwill
1: towards humanity. humanity. Yeah, yeah, it completely erases yeah. it. Um, anyway, Ryan, do you want to uh, uh, jump
0: in? No, I mean that's really all I had in terms of that. And and the other thing I would say from it, he, from his perspective, I don't, uh, I don't disagree with anything being said. But that's why I like it. <laughs> um, I, I, I like those type yeah. of I like those type of character studies where it's like completely from their perspective and like you get to know what the character's all about. I mean, my favorite movie of all time is Taxi Driver, so it's a very like similar, just right. like
1: completely. Yeah, that only from... has a single scene, just one scene, and I always think that it could have been taken out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The dancing with Jodie Foster and uh, Harvey Keitel. Right, exactly. Yeah, oh, and, it, yeah, and yeah. it's
0: and it's grody, so it could be taken out. But yeah, other than that, everything's from Travis Bickle's perspective the same way that other than the the uh, Eli confronting his dad. Pretty much everything like there's not a single scene that doesn't have Daniel Plainview in it. But um, yeah, I mean these are the type of character studies that that I enjoy. So it's 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 uh, but I but I completely see where you're coming from on that
2: end and i mean I, I i admire certain movies like that too which is i guess why ultimately like my 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 stance on this movie is more like ambivalent rather than like mm, for sure i i don't like this movie like i mean again like i see what it's doing but i also feel like and this is ob- obviously it's like this this could just be my own perspective speaking like it's like for me, I'm not sure. I find that much value in being put in the perspective of this like misanthrope who hates humanity and just wants to get away from everyone. Especially when like I I, I always I I always wonder how do you get this way and they don't they don't really there's not that many scenes that show you, you see obviously when like in that early scene like when he like that first when we first hear Plainview speak. Uh, and you see all those people reacting to to what he says about like um, about trying to drill for oil in their town and he's like well no, screw this and then he walks he, he walks away. Um, and I mean I, I you can certainly feel the like like the frustration in plain view and so like I, I get that like it puts you in that headspace but um I don't know I guess I just for me I I feel like it's easy to be to be cynical and I mean especially the way the world is these days it's like I, I, I perhaps do like like um, I'm I'm much easier perhaps on like cynical movies than than I, perhaps I used to be but I feel like cynicism is easy um, and it's harder to but it's harder to like emp- I guess empathy is a bit it is harder. Um, mm-hmm. and I mean, which is why, um, as far as Paul Thomas Anderson goes, and he's all, he's had empathy. Like he, his filmography is full of like, he's, he's capable of like a more kind of warm hearted empathy, mm-hmm. which is e- earlier
1: in his, er, his early work, I would say definitely. Well, even True. in Hair and advice has a lot in of like, yeah. warm hearted. And empathy. I was going to,
2: uh, I was going to say that, um, and as far as empathy goes, this is why I've always, Kind of preferred the master, uh, mm. to there will be blood because I feel it's kind of like him doing the best of both worlds stylistically. Is that you have that that same kind of weird detachment that he has, that he exudes that Anderson exudes in there will be blood, but I think the view of Lancaster Dodd and Freddie Cole, that relationship
1: mm-hmm.
2: is to me at least, and I, to me like I was. Like it's like uh I think it's in its own weird way a mm. a, a warmer film and, and and um and I think like as far as Do you as think
1: that might that might have something to do with the performances? Like uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix's performances I feel like are more um emotionally um empathetic and complex in a way that um which is you know, if it was like that in Darwin Blood, I think it would have taken right. a lot out of the kind of sure. uh, a yeah. fable like yeah. or morality tale like right. um like a grander more epic more universal uh, uh, approach that the film has towards like the ugliness of humanity yeah. uh it would take away from that because uh, it yeah. does tackle that in a more generic way and yeah. you know you, you're obviously you, i mean just to let you know you're not going to get any pushback from us regarding the master um Ryan wasn't that like your favorite yeah, that so was my that was here.
0: that was my number one film of twenty twelve yeah. and then Inherent Vice yeah, was ultimately was like my number one of twenty fourteen. So like you're yeah, you're not gonna get any pushback on yeah, that okay. one. None, but, none but, of
1: us are none of us are gonna be like but the master's.
0: But the master, like, despite like, you know, you you definitely can find the the deep flaws in both uh, Lancaster Dodd and Freddie Quill, but like that movie's ultimately about two men looking for a connection, whatever way they can. And so and, like, yeah. yeah, yeah. So there, there is that inherent, like, despite the, the cold distance, there is like a, like the last scene, like that second to last scene in that movie just gets me
2: every single time. The, the slow <laughs> boat to China. Yeah. 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 It's, it's just like,
0: that's, it's that's great. Yeah. yeah. It destroys me. So like, I'm, yeah, you're not going to get any pushback from us and on that
2: Also, one. And also like, you know, when, when the master came out, it was a lot of like, there was a lot of talk about the whole like riffing on Scientology aspect but um, I feel like as much as it obviously, like, takes the piss out of Scientology, rightly so, like, I think Anderson's attitude toward religion, the master is, I feel that he's a he's a bit more respectful of religion mm-hmm. in the master, insofar as like, you see what this organized religion does for Freddie Quell, who is this rootless, disturbed war veteran if i remember all my details correctly mm-hmm. that, that feels like he well, he's needs- suffering
1: from ptsd
2: basically. ptsd yeah yeah that's right um and that he 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 finds this kind of family with this group of nutty people <laughs> exactly. um so it's like he's so it's like yeah like this is this this religion's obviously bullshit but it means something to Freddie and I guess also to Lancaster as well. So I, I I feel maybe it's obviously this may all just be down to personal preference, but I find something I guess maybe more clarifying in that than I have mm. with there will be blood for all its um its obvious aesthetic strengths. And I mean mm. I you won't get like you certainly won't get any argument from me about like. Especially the Johnny Greenwood score, like oh, I mean, yeah. both those scores are great. But oh yeah, uh,
1: tech technically that movie is I, for me it's pitch perfect. Yeah, it's
2: yeah. it's totally I totally like I I totally am on board with that. It's just that I find it I find there will be blood. I just
1: You just don't care much about the characters
2: or what happens. Well, to I you. I I don't demand that I have to care about the characters. That's right. that's it's just that maybe I just don't. Maybe it's just like for me the film reach its its grand reach has always exceeded its grasp mm. that's the way i've always felt about there will be blood
1: <laughs> well that that was uh that was Roger Ebert's initial review i think that's what he was yeah. like he, he kind of gave it the same reaction that you're giving it in a way yeah. <laughs> that it is it is an incredibly ambitious film and its reach is basically to tell this very far reaching tale about the darkness and humanity and how we are just basically wired to self-destruct in many ways.
2: Yeah. I mean, again, it's like for me, like it's, it's in, there will be bloods in many ways for me. Like it's, it's a very impressive, like self-contained object. That's the way I kind of view it. But I, I guess for me, it's never quite open out to something that I can like, mm-hmm. that brings me like a new way of looking at things, um, like whatever like whether it's like capitalism or religion or just like i guess misanthropes (laughs) like i mean it's it feels like it's i feel it's kind of like confirming a lot of perhaps what i already knew and thus why um and it's just like i i'm impressed by it but i guess it doesn't work for me in a way that makes it like indelible to me Mm, Not, not not at least to the level of like you know like one of the like best film of the 21st century so far as, you know, mm. the, the New York times <laughs> critics recently, uh, mm, totally crowned it. Like I I've never quite been on that bandwagon, but I mean, again, it's like, I, I certainly, there's certainly a lot to admire about the film and I, I rewatching it in preparation for this podcast. You know, I was, I was as impressed as ever by like a lot of the set pieces and mm. Daniel day Lewis and, and, uh, And the score and all that stuff. Well, I do love
0: that when a film reaches that sort of like level in the zeitgeist, you know, regarded as a masterpiece to, to, you know, to have that perspective of like actually like peeling it back and like dissecting it and say, hey, you know, maybe maybe it isn't like, you know, maybe it does have these things that are worth considering, which I'm, I'm happy you brought to. To this conversation, like speaking to that New York Times list, you know, I I feel that same way about a movie like The Tree of Life. Like I've always thought it was ambitious, appreciate it, but have never like mm-hmm. really like fully given myself up to that movie. So like I'm I'm I totally I totally see where you're coming from.
2: Yeah, well, I I,
1: I, always, I always understand when films with such a wide grasp, no matter how much I connect to it on a personal level when films like that don't connect with other people because they are really just they're they're approaching these themes in such a grand scale that um it's it makes it harder to please everybody in in a, sure. in a way
2: yeah and hey like no, no artist is under any obligation to please everyone. So, yeah. like, I mean, Anderson, like, obviously settled on this particular approach. But maybe this. I They'll, should have
1: said, like, connected. Like, it doesn't yeah. have to. Like, it can't connect with everybody when you sure. have such a grander uh, kind of grasp.
2: And with a character like Plainview, obviously.
1: Yeah.
2: He, 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 no, people obviously, not everyone obviously is going to connect with him, but, you Well, know, hopefully you're well, not. The, the people... point is
1: that hopefully you're not supposed to connect with him.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, some people may find something interesting like of some kind of interest about him i guess in spite of the awful things he does and maybe i haven't quite gotten to that point as 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 much as i'm enthralled with day lewis's like flamboyance in the role
1: yeah well well, there are a disturbing amount of people who idolize that character for all the wrong reasons kind of like people with starface or Tony, tony montana yeah yeah, yeah, and I think you know, as a as a bit of a seg uh, as, a, as a bit of a segue, I would put up um, the Wolf of Wall Street, for example, as an example of that. Yes, that, that film is like so fastly paced and so much fun and so funny that you can kind of mistake it for like that it's it's glorifying its subject matter, but at, but actually yeah. what it's doing is it's 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 relentlessly mocking it. Uh, so yeah, you you always run the risk of. Uh, of, uh, doing something like that. But, um, what do you guys think? Do you guys want to, like, move on to the underrated? So let's move on to our underrated pick, which is also Kenji's pick. Uh, it is the 2004 Martin Scorsese-directed Leonardo DiCaprio starring, uh, Howard Hughes' biopic The Aviator. Look, take
2: a couple hours off,
1: all right? You just you relax a little bit. Okay. See your why. Okay. Show me all the blueprints. right. Blueprints. Yeah, blueprints. Serious now. Show me all the blueprints. Show me all the blue show me all the blueprints. Show me all the blueprints. And uh Kanji, why did you pick this as your underrated?
2: Partly because uh Honestly, partly because I, I did want to grapple since you offered me this opportunity to grapple with there will be blood, I um I was I recently revisited the Aviator um not too long ago and uh, one of the things that I like I thought about in my head was how much it felt like in some ways Scorsese was kind of exploring a similar character to what Anderson would tackle with Daniel Plainview and there will be blood and doing it like years before he did so um i felt as a and uh, i felt like that would be it would be a natural uh juxtaposition for for this conversation and i guess i should preface by saying that i'm not like i like the movie quite a bit the aviator i wouldn't necessarily say it's like a great film necessarily especially since you mentioned the wolf of wall street um i feel like to some degree that the wolf of wall street is perhaps an even better film about a capitalist monster
1: oh thank Uh, you i was definitely going to bring that up so yeah (laughs) i was too so good call but but i feel like I, i feel like it might
2: be worth uh perhaps rescuing the reputation of the aviator a bit just because i feel just just because of how much i feel howard hughes at least as he's characterized in this film and uh, in John Logan's script and in Scorsese's direction and Leonardo DiCaprio's performance how much he does fit in with Scorsese's macho pro- like his his macho protagonists um, like um, say Jordan Belfort in Wolf of Wall Street but also like all 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 many of the male characters in Goodfellas who seem to only be I think this is like Classic Pauline Kael characterization. They they only know they, they only know how to do one thing: steal. And uh, Howard Hughes, at least as portrayed in this film, only knows how to do one thing, and it's uh, make money, <laughs> mm-hmm. make a lot of money. And um, but so I feel like it does fit in with Scorsese's filmography quite quite handsomely, even despite its circumstances, because I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. This is this was technically like a work for hire, right? Because Michael Mann was originally supposed to direct mm-hmm. this. Uh, and then Scorsese took over, but I, I still see a lot of Scorsese's personality in this. Um, oh, time. and of course he's working in a, a more like, I guess, popular style. Like this is a very lavish period epic. And, but, and, and in some ways it speaks to not only, I guess, Scorsese's, uh, Interest in uh, classic cinema, classic Hollywood cinema, but also um, I guess just like Hughes' own grandiosity, like this is a guy that was willing to, among other things like reshoot a whole film when if I remember correctly it if w- at, when, um, when when sounds came in yeah,
1: talkies became really, the thing he re-shot the whole thing,
2: thing. He reshot the whole film and was willing to waste a lot of money in order to get that uh, that dogfight in Hell's Angels just right.
1: Well, the driving uh, theme is obviously ambition. Yeah. And his ambition also feeds his OCD, is that everything has to be perfect, that kind of like everything has to be perfect attitude, uh, yeah. where he's kind of tragically stuck in, in. the, I really love the last couple of minutes of this film because of the way that it just kind of anticlimactically for this lavish biopic genre just kind of fizzles out, right? No, <laughs> it just gives, kind of goes. Yeah. tells you where this is going. It gives you it gives you
2: that like triumphant moment when he lands the spruce. He flies the spruce goose, but mm-hmm. it, it it complicates that with. Uh, it leaves you not with that, but with him saying the way of the future repeatedly, and thus paving the way for, among other things, Warren Beatty's Howard Hughes and Rules Don't Apply. <laughs>
1: Which I I haven't seen. Ryan, did you see
2: that? No, I didn't see it. I yeah. I I, one one reason why I was interested in revisiting the aviator too back in December was like rules don't apply, it just come out and so there were um a lot of chatter about Howard Hughes and it also like I actually wrote something up for Brooklyn magazine, like just a short capsule review. It was timed for a screening of the aviator in at the Museum of the Moving Image here in New York. So like it was my reason for revisiting it. Um interesting film. I I, I can't, at least rules don't apply. Like I, I, I guess it's kind of like a, um, a tangent, but yeah, I, I can't quite get on board with the people that say it's like some kind of under, like underrated, like, like mess, messy masterpiece, something as some people have Mm. said, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's an interesting film. (laughs) Um, I guess I, I wanted, I just wanted to talk about the aviator for for this episode because um for one thing now um obviously that that beginning scene in the film the the quarantine scene i mean obviously that's a bit of like dime store psychology to Mm. to pin all that to just that one thing so i guess for me it does suggest a bit of perhaps what i find missing and there will be blood it's like it's kind of like the aviator does offer, like, its own version of Rosebud, whereas mm. Anderson, and obviously deliberately, I'm sure, but, like, he, he doesn't even bother to give you the Rosebud, mm. <laughs> which, I mean, I guess it's fine. It, 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 it perhaps points to why I've always found that frustrating, but... Mm. Uh, but yeah, uh, um,
1: Ryan, do you want to jump in?
2: Um... Sure, I'll jump in here.
0: Um, watch it. I hadn't seen the movie since two thousand four, um, so it had been a while. Uh, I certainly like it. I'm glad you brought up Wolf of Wall Street. Um, I'd even probably at least at the beginning of this movie throw a little uh, Great Gatsby in there, as far as like lavish period pieces starring Leonardo sure. DiCaprio. Yeah. But um, yeah, this movie does kind of play plays a little like a double feature for me, especially in hindsight. Like you have the like the, the uh, exceptionalism and the capitalism that Scorsese did very well with Wolf of Wall Street, and I feel like right. in this movie uh, also reminds me a lot of Hugo because I think there is the, a lot of starry eyed uh, love for the past and for his love of classical cinema um, that shines through a lot of that first hour of the movie. Um,
1: and they, yeah. those two kind of clash don't they
0: they do at times like i i i prefer the back half of this movie um to the to the first half of it but uh at least for a while you're like okay like because at first it is a very typically structured biopic with scorsese's flair. like there's there's tracking shots yeah. for days and the the cutting yeah, yeah. of the the uh lights uh, of the cameras shattering like you know stuff like that um but they do clash for a while because it's like you're you're building up the story about American exceptionalism, but also sort of glorifying the, you know, w- again with that starry eyed aspect. But then when it takes that turn after the the pretty <laughs> brutal uh, plane yeah. crash, which still like right. it, it shocked me then, and it still was like I'm like, oh man, that's really brutal for a PG-13 movie, um, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and then it sort of does take that. Sort of turn into to um kind of to madness, but also just this sort of like sad sad reality that this character is now living in, and I think that mm-hmm. that half is stronger um but this movie, especially like Robert Richardson's cinematography like the the color palette yep. that they went with it's it's a it's a beautiful movie like it's a undeniably yeah. beautiful movie.
1: In some ways, he's he's a bit too enamored with Howard Hughes as a figure, and you can totally understand Scorsese being a, first and foremost a uh, an old Hollywood nerd. Um, you can see why he would be kind of really into Howard Hughes, and the, it almost the film almost comes across as like this fashion project, which makes it interesting to find out that he was a bit of a gun for hire for this. Uh, yeah. It looks like. With his, uh, with Scorsese's love for old Hollywood, um, you would think that this was like a 20 year, 20 plus year passion project in the making the way that Gangs right. of New York um, was. Uh, and uh, so there's there's this kind of clashing between, he wants you to kind of empathize with him, he wants you to kind of be, uh, be in awe of his like yeah kind of insane achievements and he kind of lulls you into that during the first half and i do agree with ryan that i prefer the second half a bit more because that's when the kind of darkness sets in that's when you start realizing how this kind of like self-centered perfectionism right can really get in the way get in the way and uh you can like really ruin other people's lives and people are just kind of like the company like we don't really get to see it but we're always here like how much like the company's always at the ber- uh, verge of bankruptcy, and he's employing right. like thousands, of thousands of people. Yeah, These he
2: doesn't care. Yeah,
1: yeah, he doesn't care. These people's lives are going to be ruined. He doesn't care. He doesn't act like a CEO. He acts like a king, uh, mm-hmm. just like I want. And then at, at times, this this kind of approach, his narcissistic, his narcissism turns into kind of like he starts acting like a toddler uh, in in some ways. So in this. Um, while we lived through yeah. this administration, it was an interesting film to watch for sure. <laughs> um, and I think nice. I think partly, um, partly the reason why like it was harder this time around for me to like really connect with the film. Uh, I hadn't seen it since 2004 either. And part of the reason was just like I don't want to watch like a at least the first hour and a half. I was like I don't want to <laughs> watch like a fawning uh, romanticized approach to a narcissistic childlike rich person's life, you know, like, uh, it's like a kind of a personal thing these days. <laughs> yeah. I, but,
2: I, um, but yeah. that,
1: that, that, that's of course not, of course that's not Scorsese's fault in any way, but, but yeah, he does kind of tip it, uh, after the halfway point and it becomes a more interesting film, um, mm. in the way that it, uh, yeah, I, I would, I would give it to you that, um, yeah, he does give us the Rosebud moment and he does kind of create a bit more of a, How should I say, like level-headed approach to capitalism—the way that it's, 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 its approach and its, its, its approach to its themes are a lot more connected to Citizen Kane than it is to There'll Be Blood, where he tries to like genuinely get into the mind of this character and what drove him, what propelled him, and uh, and almost like Aviator embodies the idea, the the famous line from uh, Citizen Kane, which is, uh, you can make a lot of money if all you want to do is make a lot of money. Yeah, uh, and it kind of like captures that. That's that's all he's driven for. That's all he's going for. That's why all of his um, relationships fail, uh, and he becomes like more and more of a recluse because he has trouble finding anybody who can even keep up with his kind of perfectionist uh, madness, and that becomes yeah. uh, more and more of a thing. Uh, so, so the approach is right, What I find kind of dull is the execution that, that yeah, it is, it is a bit of an overlong film in some ways, and mm-hmm. in some ways it is too short uh, because I feel like this could have been, like, either a great shorter feature or, like, a 10-hour miniseries, which uh, back then that wasn't, of course, a possibility, but now you kind of think about, <laughs> like... He could have, you know, I could kind of see Scorsese taking this to HBO or Netflix where those kind of like giant budget things like spread out over like nine, 10 hours, like actually fly now, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. So I kind of I kind of have this kind of approach to it. I was like, it's kind of stuck in between because it doesn't really, you know, I would almost prefer like a like a feature that focused on one of the aspects that it deals with either the the whole the whole production of Hell's Angels could have made for like a great two hour movie. Uh, that stuff is fascinating or the whole yeah. like building of the plane. Like if you just focused on the building of the plane, uh, that could have been like, like, you know, that kind of like a, kind of like the Lincoln approach, like Lincoln is a kind of a biopic, but it's all about the, uh, what is it? The, um, ratification of the 13th amendment. Right. Right. Um, I didn't, I didn't grow up in the States, so I never took <laughs> civics class here. Right. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so I think the kind of a Lincoln approach to The Aviator, I think, could have worked better because uh, you don't really get to spend enough time for me to sink your teeth into um, into one particular thing. You're kind of like moving moving right along, which, you know, this movie, I think as long as it is, it shouldn't have been longer than that anyway, so I understand. But, uh, yeah, maybe a bit more of a focused approach um, I mean, instead it, of a it, yeah. sprawling biography like biopic approach maybe could have worked.
0: I had no idea right. that this was originally gonna be uh Michael Mann. Um like now saying that, I would have loved to see what he would have done with this movie. Just just the way yeah. that he both like revels in and critiques like toxic masculinity, like all in the same vein would have been like really fascinating yeah. to see. Right.
2: Well I mean oh the thing is for me about the Aver is I, I guess I see it as also like scorsese's attempt to um like you, you talk about how he he comes uh close to like glorifying the glorifying the Hughes character before he goes off the deep end with his ocd and his uh
1: there's certainly it, more com- complex uh, empathy uh here than there'll be blood
2: i always like i feel like like for like all the loving period recreations to some degree i one could perhaps read that as um, Scorsese's own attempt to get inside Hughes's. I mean get inside his head while not necessarily like it's also playing a similar kind of like tricky balancing act. He He's trying to like uh, embody uh, this this uh, this figure while also perhaps trying to s- stand a bit above it. So you get to see the lavish lifestyle that he lives. Uh, but there are even then there are moments here and there like, uh, like that, that whole montage when he's on the, uh, um, the the sequence where he's at the at the premiere of Hell's Angels mm-hmm. on the red carpet, where you you, bit, you feel just how <laughs> like with all the
1: all the the flashes uh, going and flash like how impressive it is, yeah. The
2: way like Thelma Schoonmaker edits all that together, yeah. you, you really especially feel... with his
1: OCD, you kind of feel yeah. for him in that moment, yeah.
2: Yeah, but I mean, but yeah, obviously, like um, you're not really meant to necessarily identify with this character either but like i mean even even in films like goodfellas or like raging bull there's always like scorsese i feel has always been kind of like there there is a certain level of wary admiration to Mm. these rather terrible people but there's just something about them that fascinates them whether it's like the high-flying lifestyle that uh um, Henry Hill wants to wants to bask in, in Goodfellas, and the way like Scorsese shoots all that, you certainly like you feel that. While even though even as a lot of that goes haywire later on, when they have to base when the chickens come home to roost, more or less. And even then, who knows if Henry Hill actually learns anything at the end of that movie?
1: <laughs> yeah, it doesn't um, seem like he does, and that's yeah. what makes Scorsese so special, especially when dealing with such kind of despicable characters. Is that he always finds a way for you to uh, empathize uh, and relate to these characters on a base level. And Goodfellas is a great example of that. And that's part of the reason why I love um, Wolf of Wall Street so much is because it's so refreshing in the way that you don't get any of that with his approach to, Jordan Belfort like you can tell that he just straight up hates this guy (laughs) like like, there's no like the Wolf of Wall Street really doesn't have like I mean it's boastful and it's like stylish and all that and like it captures it captures his point of view his gaudy point of view but also it doesn't like really give him much of an inch towards like he understands where he's coming from but he doesn't like really there's no awe involved there's no like he's not impressed basically yeah uh, and, yeah. and that that exists with with the aviator for sure that he there is this like level of awe that he he uh he puts into howard hughes but also like you said the thing that i admire about it is that he never really lets you off like you gave the example of the premiere that's supposed to be like a uh another director would have turned that into like a lavish kind of, like, very high moment for the character, like, yeah. everything is going great, um, and you're supposed to... It's this moment where it's just like, all the hard work of the character is paying off, and um, the audience is supposed to be kind of envious of the character, and even in moments like that, uh, he shows you that when you're this kind of a personality, nothing is going to be enough. You're never going to get to a point where you're going to be satisfied. So... Even mm-hmm. like even at this point where it's just like it's supposed to be like the culmination of his uh hard work, he's still uneasy and he's still not satisfied. And that kind of of course uh pays off at the end of that scene where he's like, Yeah, we're well, we reshooting the whole thing. You know, it's it's all yeah. about hockeys <laughs> now. And uh and that's when you start to realize, like, yeah, this guy's never gonna stop. The way that Daniel Plainview is never gonna stop, but at least yeah, in the in the case of the aviator, um, it is more of a personal kind of biopic story, which kind of strips it away from being, like having that kind of gorgeous and impactful um, kind of uh, fable, like human fable quality that, barely um, right. blood has. You
2: no, know, it, it is a different kind of movie. Um, yeah, yeah, but and uh, that's certainly and that's not necessarily a knock on either film. Uh, I guess I guess I find there's I guess there's a certain like fundamental honesty about Scorsese's approach like his his very much admiring but also like wary approach to this character I, f- I find a certain honesty in that so I so I so while I I certainly get the I guess the uh ambivalence about it like I and especially in yeah as you said in this in our current political climate <laughs> I guess to some degree I I kind of, in a sense, maybe just refreshingly honest of him to admit that. Mm. And I mean, it's and then and, I, and it certainly is impressive to, to watch. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. I, um, I think, would, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it would be hard to imagine like a movie, a film like Derby Blood uh, made by Scorsese because he's such a deeply empathetic filmmaker that he would find a way to dig deep into even. Kind of an unredeemable unredeem- ir- character like Daniel Plainview to figure out like what where he's really coming from, and that's what's so special about Scorsese. That's why his spiritually packed films like Last Temptation of Christ, Kundun, yeah. and recently Silence, Yeah.
0: Um,
1: I have so much respect for because he does such an amazing job of like in just approaching these subjects in a in a in a deeply emotional yet yet very uh, level-headed way, and he kind right. of. Yeah. That's why he's so, um, you know, he's one of our uh, greatest American filmmakers uh, living yeah. today. Uh, Ryan, what do you think about, um, do you agree with me when I say that the, the film, Aviator specifically has some pacing issues where it should have been shorter or should have been a Either that or it should have been a like a miniseries or something like that.
0: Well, I mean, I think it's – I mean, yeah. I, I just flat out, yes, because you, you, you brought up Lincoln. I'd also say Selma would be another good example of like taking an historical figure and just carving out a moment in their time, a moment in their history to focus on because it, it is hard anymore, especially like, again, it, this wouldn't have happened in 2004. But in this day and age when, when you can do like the eight-part, ten-part – miniseries, um, you know, a story like this. You, you know, you don't see the long epic biopics anymore. And like uh, really That's true. uh like and, and even like the good ones, as recently like straight out of Compton, a movie I really, really liked. Uh I feel mm-hmm. like I would have watched a ten hour version of that if like if if they mm-hmm. were able to make that. Um so I, I do think that the movie has it has pacing issues from that side, but not from Scorsese's side because the guy knows how to pace a movie and has never made him like his movies that are three hours or near three hours like this and casino and Wolf of wall street always feel like they just fly by. Like there's, he just has a way of doing that. So um, I don't think the movie itself has inherent pacing issues, but yeah, it could have benefited from a different approach um, but it it doesn't mean that it's a less like 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 Kenji says it's a very it's still a very fascinating movie um, and I like that they do you know that that there's both a uh, that there's an admittance to both admiring but also coming down on Howard Hughes at the same time um, I think there's also a lot of like. Good supporting performances in the movie too i also think there's a lot of distracting ones yep. um at the same time i i, I think john c Riley and uh adam scott and matt ross are great uh kate blanchett is kate blanchett is divine <laughs> she's divine well she's of course she's divine she at first she's a little caricature but like they really get it's a into bit that. of mimicry it comes across at first at first yeah. but but when they get into that character um, she's, she's really terrific. Uh, I think Jude Law, Gwen Stefani and Kate Beckinsale are incredibly distracting <laughs> in the movie, uh, mm-hmm. more than they serve a purpose, but, uh, um, yeah. they're, but they're fine. They're fine when they show up. The, as... the characters
1: don't really serve much of a purpose, but I do like Kate Beckinsale's take on Eva Gardner. It's not as, it's not as much mimicry, for example, as, um, uh, Kate Blanchett is, uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's a bit more of a nuanced take on the sultriness of eva gardner
0: right or jude law's Errol flynn who just shows up briefly <laughs> just, yeah
1: that's the, totally pointless i yeah. don't know what, that's what the hell that was about <laughs> I mean, it
2: prob- these are probably like yeah like script like concessions to like a certain breed of like hollywood biopic like, as as is like a lot of the issues you all you all speak of which i won't necessarily disagree with right but again like like ryan said like you say ryan like yeah like scorsese with what you got, what he worked with, he knows how to he knows how to, to pace a film. And for me, even even these three packed hours just like it just flies by. I guess pun intended. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so lots uh, of flying puns today. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we're at a point where we can start uh, wrapping up the episode. Um, I think we went through um, a lot of interesting recommendations for sure uh, of films about uh good old american ambition um and capitalism uh so you can basically listen to this episode and then just rent or buy a bunch of movies and throw your own kind of american <laughs> capitalism festival uh starting with uh there'll be blood uh the master wolf of wall street the aviator um goodfellas probably you can throw in there uh yeah that uh, so yeah it's a lot of lot of different lot of interesting options there, but, uh, but yeah, see
2: uh, where we are now through all these films.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They're very important for that matter. Yeah. If you want to find out how we got to this, uh, shithole, um, yeah, just take a, take a look at how we got there through the 20th century. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, uh, so this, this has been, yeah, uh, yet another one. Whenever, whenever we, uh, anticipate kind of like a contentious, you know, oh, you picked Derby Blood, that movie's a masterpiece, how dare you, kind of thing. And then, you know, as usual, uh, we usually just, it usually comes out very civil. And this has been a uh, very uh, fun uh, little uh, interesting little discussion. And uh, thank you so much for um, for joining in, Kanji. Um, uh, thanks for and, having me. Yeah, and uh, so thank you so much for listening to another episode of over Under Movies, uh, we are hosted by the Playlist Podcast Network. And you can find us uh, and other shows like Adjust Your Tracking and Binge Worthy and the the general Playlist Podcast, which uh, Ryan appears uh, from time to time, uh, on the playlist.net on the podcast tab. You can also find us on iTunes. Uh, you can find us. Uh, Ryan, do you know if we're on Stitcher? We're on Stitcher and we're on SoundCloud as well right yeah you can find us on stitcher and soundcloud uh specifically for over under movies podcast you can follow us on facebook.com slash over movies and we are on twitter uh, at over under movies and for the um next episode we usually kind of tease our picks but uh they're going to be my picks this time around uh but but this time we're gonna kind of leave you with a little bit of mystery because i'm trying to see if i can get another one of our previous guests to join in a, um, an episode. And if that happens, I'm going to have a different set of picks than the ones that I have in mind. So um, so we'll see in a couple of weeks, and hopefully that's going to be a pleasant surprise. Um, so without further ado, uh, signing off here, it's Oktay Ege Kozak. I'm a film critic and contributor for The Playlist, uh, Paste Magazine, uh, DVD Talk, and BeyazParda.com.
0: Signing off is Ryan Oliver. I'm co-host of this podcast as well as the general Playlist
2: podcast. And this is Kenji Fujishima. I am a contributor to Village Voice, Paste Magazine, Slant Magazine. Uh, I think that's about it. And also recently a uh, copy editor slash news writer for TheaterMania.com. So I cover all different arts and culture areas
1: oh yeah so so check that out theatermania.com uh thank you so much guys for uh joining in and we'll we'll see you next time